rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. I'm sitting here in the studio just outside of beautiful Nashville, Tennessee, in Franklin, Tennessee, with my friend Glenn Schweitzer. Welcome to the podcast, Glenn. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Uh, and one of the things that's fascinating uh, about your story, Glenn, is uh, one of the things that you're currently working on, which you're a filmmaker, you're making a documentary, you've been in video for years. Uh, about this experience on the Appalachian Trail called Trail Mix. Trail Mix, the Trail Mix documentary. Yeah, yeah. But before we get into that, because I think it's a lifetime that has led up to this documentary. And um, so tell me, who is Glenn Schweitzer? Um, I, I know you're not from this area. You're not from Tennessee. Where, where did you grow up? What was your early life like? I actually grew up in Los Angeles. Okay. In the San Fernando Valley, out in California. And uh, third generation California. And, you know, I kind of, my journey, I guess if I were to start from the beginning, I was born and I was raised Catholic. Mm. Old boy did the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I actually became a Christian, I think, when I was 15 because I had Bell's palsy. Really? And, yeah. So it was on your face? It was or? on my face, yeah. So, so that, explain people what that is. Bell's palsy is basically your nerve endings. Mine were cut off at the neck, mm. and they fan out. If you were to look at your fingers like a fan going across your face, uh, I, that was cut off at the neck. So I lost on one side of my face. Couldn't close my eye. I couldn't smile. I couldn't do anything. So it looks like your face, you'd been through a stroke. Looked right? like I had a stroke, yeah. Mm. And that's even today, I think that they're confused on. Sometimes they don't know if it's a stroke or Bell's palsy mm-hmm. when they get that. But it happened to be the first day of high school. And wow. I'll never forget, you know, you're trying to make an impression and you're like doing this half smile. And it was pretty awkward. But it lasted for probably a year and a half. Mm. And at that time... What was that like? As a Oh, it sucked. You know, you're trying to... <laughs> especially I went to Catholic school. And so I had only recently... I think I started the public school system... In eighth grade. And so you're like, what, 15? I was 15, yeah. Okay. And, you know, you're trying to make an impression. I didn't know anybody because everybody in the school comes from the elementary school. Everybody kind of grew up with each other. And I went to a Catholic school. So it wasn't like you were going into a new school and people were like, oh, that's the way he's always been. This were people like, what happened to Glenn? Exactly, yeah. 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 And I was into skateboarding. I was doing a lot of things back then. So it kind of took my mind away from it. But, um. Went to, Bell's palsy was not real common back then. And so my mom took me to UCLA Medical Center. And so I, they put me on like 12 cortisone a day. Mm. I mean, I kind of, it gave me ADD. I mean, I was kind of like, was it over. painful? No, didn't feel it. In fact, it was numb. I didn't really feel it. And I had to tape my eye shut at night. I would put a cotton ball on my eye, mm. tape Because you couldn't control the couldn't side control of your, half of your face. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't blow, I couldn't suck through a straw, couldn't close my eyes. And uh, anyway, it took a while, but during the process, my mom had changed churches, and it was a church called Grace Community Church. It's a pretty big one in, mm-hmm. in Sunland. And John MacArthur is the teacher there. And I started going there because I just needed something different in my life. As this, I was, I didn't understand what was happening with me, mm. and 
through that process, I became a Christian. I mm-hmm. became born again through that church and mm-hmm. kind of through the whole uh, Catholicism, you know, to the side. It's like, oh, wait, man-made laws versus just read the Bible. So, right, right. So that kind of it was the beginning of my journey with my faith. What was your home life like? Uh, it, it was pretty bad. My mom and dad got divorced. Uh, we could my my growing up was it sucked pretty bad because my mom is awesome. My mom and dad got divorced when I was young, but my mom. How old were you? Uh, I think I was eleven. So they think that stress could have been part of this whole Bell's palsy thing. Well, what was it like when you found out your parents were getting divorced at eleven years old? It was pretty bad, but my dad was an alcoholic, mm. and my dad would you know he would hit my mom. And I was, I have a, an older brother who is, he's uh, kind of the black sheep of the family, I guess. But how, so how many children, brothers, siblings? Just one brother, okay, that's it. So and he's three years older than I am. And he was very attached to my dad, and I was very attached to my mom. Mm. So when my dad left, and again, my mom would come into my room in the middle of the night crying because she would sleep in my bed. And you're 11. And I was 11. Mm. Yeah, to get away from him because right, right. she was scared of him. And um, it... It was pretty intense because, you know, he when he finally left, turns out I've got a half-sister that's older than their divorce. Mm. Do the math, you know, on that one. Mm. So time goes, but my mom, <clears throat> so growing up, and I think it was around when I was 17, my mom got remarried and to a guy that I used to work at Disney Studios. My mom worked at Disney. It was like her whole Disney family. She met this guy at Disney, and she was she just needed a companion. And she met this guy that really was not suited correctly for her. Mm. Um, didn't know anything about him. He moves in. He even told me flat out that you know when he moves in, there'll be some changes in the house. It's like mm. oh, like the lock on the refrigerator, and and here's a guy who was so threatened by the relationship that the son and mother had that he would say that I was taking away the love mm. that she should be giving to him. And how old were you at this At point? that time, I think it was seven, six, 16, 17, I Okay, think. so you're going through this like manhood, early manhood thing. Yeah, and this is after my Bell's palsy. It went yeah. away, and you know, so she got into this. And this guy was so threatened by me. He used to, he wanted to know where all my money was going. It's like, well, it's none of your business where my money's gone because he wanted me to start paying rent. Mm. And uh, he used to rum, ruffle through my bedroom all the time. So I finally put a lock on my bedroom door. And the first day I put the lock on, he immediately put glue in the lock so I couldn't <laughs> get the key in it. Wow. And then we got central air in the house. And we had swamp coolers in California, but to get central air, that's a big deal. And um, we got the central air in replacing that. And I'll never forget, it was one of the hottest days in the valley. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, I mean, it was probably 102 degrees, and it was boiling outside. You walk in the house, and it was, like, nice and chilly. It was awesome. Go into my bedroom, open, unlock my door. This is way after now, the, mm-hmm. the glue in the lock. Go in there, and my room is like an oven. I'm like, what is going on? And I looked up in the ceiling, and the air vent was, you could see the air vent that connected to the next room, and there was light coming through it. So I'm like, that's weird. The vent's open, but there's no air coming in. I put my hand up to it. I climb up there, and there's no air coming into my room. So I take off the vent cover. He had custom-rigged this clear piece of plexiglass 
as a wedge so the air would bypass my room and go into the other room, hmm. but it would look like it was still open. And that was the kind of thing that we went through. Hmm. And um, that went on, I believe, for about six months until he finally, my brother was still living there at the time. And um, this, I, luckily I wasn't home, but this guy went into my brother's room and said, tell your mother I love her. And my brother looks down the hall and he's got a gun to his head. So my brother is a big guy and he runs down the hallway and he tackles this guy and gets the gun out of his hand, which freaked us out because if he would have shot himself and it looked like a struggle, my brother would have been accused yeah, of yeah. murder. So that was pretty intense. That's a nutshell. That was mm. my um, pre-marriage situation. So I ended up meeting somebody right around that time who ended up becoming my wife. We dated for like four years. So you were still a teenager at the time? I was still, yeah. I was, I think I met her when I was 18. So yeah, I got married at 24. And, uh, but that, you know, that was it. But my mom is an angel. I mean, Mm. this woman has been through so much. She is. Did she ever remarry? She did. And then he passed away. Mm. So yeah. So now she's single. She's here in the neighborhood. And I look after her. So she's becoming elder. So you got married, you met someone and dated, obviously, for several years. Yeah, back then I was married for 24 years. Wow. And we moved from California together to Nashville. Found Nash. You know, it's funny, I worked at Disney Studios. Yeah, talk I, about that a little bit. So did you follow in the footsteps of your mom? Did she get you a job there? No, I... So my major, going through college, was architecture. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be an architect. And I, I would go to... Disney Studios for lunch quite often to have lunch with my mom and I get to wander the studio and watch people making Mm -hmm. movies and I remember going into the set design department and the set design department was literally they were like the architects of the studios of the sets Mm -hmm. and I thought wow that's actually really cool to take what I'm doing in architecture which takes too long to happen I didn't like architecture because I'm not very patient and to watch a structure be designed and go up. It takes, you know, could be a year. And I was doing commercial mm-hmm. uh, architecture. So when I realized, well, wait, I can design a movie set mm-hmm. and they can put it up in a day. I thought that was really cool. So yeah. I would, I had a new mission. I was going to um, that department and I was just, I got to know everybody in there. I was really good about, I wasn't afraid to meet people yeah. and found out what they did. So as I'm about a year into working in the mail department, the department I was going to go work at got laid off. They just let them go because it was cheaper at that time to hire. So the department that I was aiming to go into is no longer there. Now, were you married at this time? No. Okay. No, I was still dating. And uh, didn't really know what to do. And so I remember walking around my portfolio was, and this is before computers, so you know nothing was digital. Right. Digital didn't exist. And I remember walking into a lot of vice president's offices, but one of them was this guy named Richard Freed. And it was right when the Disney Channel had started. And when the Disney Channel started, it was partnering with the home video. So it was home entertainment. That's what it was called. And so I met this guy, Richard Freed, and showed him my goofy little portfolio of architectural drawings and goofy watercolors. I still had never really taken an art class in my life because everything I was doing was very technical. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, and he knew how 
passionate I was about mm. wanting a job in there. And he looked at me and said, yeah, I think we got something for you. They hired me on the spot out of the mailroom as a um, project coordinator. Mm. And what was cool about that is, well, number one, I had an office. I mean, mm. I'd never had an office. I was a kid still. I think I was, sure. at that point I was probably 20, probably 22. And I'll admit I did not graduate college because I was reaching towards I was so passionate about working at Disney that I left yeah, sure. college because I had an opportunity at Disney. So I had to figure out, well, you know, now I'm starting in this department. I don't really know doing what because I didn't really even know what graphic design was at that time. But I was the in-between. I was the guy who worked with all the Los Angeles ad agencies mm-hmm. and design firms and worked with the Disney marketing department. Mm. So I was the one reaching out to them, re- asking for quotes and that kind of thing. How was that? Did you enjoy that? I loved it. It was cool. It was so out of my realm. Yeah, this was in the age where the, he was at the tail end of the Mad Men era, so you still had yeah. a lot of that like big ad agency oh, yeah. kind of vibe oh, going yeah. on. Gray and Thompson. It, it was, it, I was really passionate. I kind of wanted to work in an ad agency at that time. I was mm-hmm. like, but I kind of realized I'm not an ad agency kind of person. Right. Um, you, it is a certain type personality and I wasn't that personality. So I was, I learned what graphic design was through this Mm -hmm. and I was now working with Los Angeles, the Los Angeles firms that are gigantic and, um, became quite passionate about it. And I remember going to my boss and said, you know what? I think I can do that. I Mm want to design. I want to help create in-house. We had an in-house art director who kind of did some basic packaging. This is in the home video department. We were doing VHS boxes at that time. So movie posters, logos. Mm -hmm. So they made a deal with me and said, okay, we will reimburse you. You can go to Pasadena Arts Center because that's where I really wanted to go. And we will reimburse you for any class you take if you get a B or better. Hmm. I took them up on it. And so I took classes for about two years just night classes and just I really dove deeply into advertising. I did not get into graphic design yet because I really wanted to understand the color process. And, right. And anyway, was doing that. And finally they gave me the opportunity. They, they rehired me in house as a designer and working under this other art director. Were you still working at Disney while you're going? Yeah, to no, I'm. Yeah, so that was all night classes. And what were you doing at Disney at, during that time? I was doing that project coordinator. Okay. I was still in home video, Got so it. I was working home video, still working with the ad agencies, and it was cool because we worked with the biggest print shops. Mm. And I remember taking. So you were learning the whole business without having to actually do it yet. Correct. Right. However, I, some of it I was being able to apply it. There was we worked with some of the biggest print shops, and I would go on press checks. Mm-hmm. So I was trained to go on. Press checks. And when you're printing, you know, a million packages, it was a lot of responsibility on there. And back then with color keys and chroma keys and I forget, chroma lens, I think that was what they were. And uh, I remember taking a class, a print class at Art Center, and the instructor was teaching it a certain way. And I I remembered speaking up saying, well, that's not how you really do it. And I realized that was a big mistake to say in class. You mm-hmm. don't go against an instructor. And, <laughs> but it, they I didn't had, understand you worked at Disney. <laughs> no, and they didn't really know what I did. I tried not yeah, to right. say to because you, you're working with these big ad agencies that these instructors have probably never worked at, and right. so you're probably learning right. 
things at, at an equal or higher level in some ways, right? Yeah. There was nobody else working in the industry that were in these classes. Got it. Yeah. I was the only one actually working. And I don't know, you know, it, I realized then it's like, okay, I need to be doing this. Mm. And I became passionate. And that's been my whole, my mission statement as I was growing up was the word passion. Yeah. I believe, and I believe God intervened in every step of mm. my journey because there was no reason I got this job in home video. You know, it's, I didn't deserve it. And so this whole time you're still dating, dating, still dating. I, once I started the home video department, so I was, when I became a, actually when I started in there is when I got married. Cause I was, I must've hit around 24 at that time. Okay. So, so I got you got married, married at 24. You're yeah. still, you're working at Disney, yeah. going to school at night and then they offer you your dream job. Yeah. Right. And once I got the job, I stopped taking classes okay. and I wore, I, after a year and a half, I became a senior art director. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, I was designing stuff. I was designing magazines. I had never touched were you, that. Were stuff. you doing like, uh, video covers and things like that? Video boxes, newsletters, uh, movie posters, that's, logos. That's really neat. I look back, I saved a lot of the stuff and I, I kind of cringe. So know, what movie posters did you work on? Uh, Pinocchio. Nice. We did, um, hunt for red October. Yeah. That sure. was a cool one. Um, Color of Money. That was a mm-hmm. Kirk Douglas movie. Yeah, I remember that one. There was a number of them. And then they started doing Touchstone pictures, mm-hmm. which that was Hunt for Red October. Cooler things were coming out of there. But I was the biggest thing I loved was the point of purchase displays. Mm-hmm. You know, you walked into a video store and it was large displays holding lots of video packages. I was the one designing that. Mm. Okay. Coming up with rough ideas, then we went to manufacturers and they would refine. Got it. So you go to like a, a Target or a Walmart or whatever, and you see a display for the latest yes. videos or whatever. Exactly. And so. back then they were big because you had Huge. VHS tape, so it right. wasn't like a yeah. little. Yeah, they were, they were good size. Took some real estate for sure. Yeah. So, but so that journey was. I think I ended up staying at Disney for about seven years. Okay. And. How's your marriage at this time? It was good. Okay. It was, I mean, we were friends. Sure. You know, what, even early on, you know, we, we really were best friends. We weren't great com- companions. Uh, and, um, but anyway, one day I was working with one of the outside agencies and it was a big one. It was called 90 Degrees mm-hmm. at that time. They ended up changing their name to 3060 Design. But 90 Degrees did the design work for Disney on our really high-end stuff. And, but they also did all of Paramount home video. They mm-hmm. designed, they'd worked for the Grammys. Mm-hmm. They worked for Nestle foods. They had some pretty amazing clients. And anyway, one day they offered me a job and I decided, yeah, I left Disney to do this. And it, I'll never forget. I got heat from everybody. It's like, you cannot leave Disney. you you know, at that time, it's like, you want to retire from here. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom was still working there. She was brokenhearted that I was leaving. And and everybody I was working with, they were kind of in disbelief. But my whole thing was that I cannot move anywhere. Mm-hmm. I am, unless this guy that I'm working under moves up, who has absolutely no momentum, he had no uh, drive to go to another level. And, he, by the, and he's still there right now, too, doing the same exact thing. <laughs> How long has that been? <laughs> I've it's uh, twenty eight years, thirty years. Wow. I mean, it's been a long, heck of a long time. Mm-hmm. So he's looking towards retirement soon, and so I took on this job at this agency, and oh my god! I mean, it was 
After about a year and a half, I became the number two guy in charge under the owner. It was a boutique design studio. We had, I think it was about eight designers Mm -hmm. and had some amazing clients. You know, I was doing Hanna-Barbera logos for cartoons. I was designing style guides, which is basically for a license. If if you're a t-shirt company and you want to sell t-shirts with uh, Leave it to Beaver on it, Mm -hmm. you pay for a license through Universal. Well, I was the one designing the actual style guide, telling you as a license. What you could do and what you can't do. Yeah, what you can, and providing all that artwork for you. So I got into designing these style guides, and it was a blast. I mean, the movie Flipper, I mean, there's some bad movies in there too, but um, I did that for, I think I worked at that agency for about seven years. And you're still in L.A.? I'm still in L.A., still in L.A. And... That was a great job because I was working with the Grammy Awards, mm-hmm. which ended up meaning something in my life when I moved to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still working with Hanna-Barbera after I, well, I'll fast forward. I was still worked there. I decided at this point, I need to start my own company. We, we were trying to have kids. We couldn't have kids, which I ended up adopting. Um, and at that time, it's like, I don't want to raise a kid in L.A. anyway. And at that time, right then, the Rodney King rides happened. Mm. So what year was this? This was 90. You know what? I'm so bad on years. That would, 90, yeah, I wish, I'm sorry, I wish I knew that. But it was the day of the Rodney King rides. Yeah, it was yeah. my realization that this is not going to, this yeah. is not where I want to stay. So we were on a mission to move. And we found a lot of states, but Nashville or Franklin, Tennessee is where I really fell in love with mm-hmm. it. And so I moved here. So I started doing healthcare design and some other projects and ended up meeting. Um, so I made the decision to start my own business. And at that time, it was called Cabana Studios because I always wanted to be a cabana boy. <laughs> and uh, I saw Flamingo Kid too many times, I think. <laughs> and um, I just, I didn't really know what to do. You know, I'd never worked for myself. Yeah. I, I'm working, I'm looking in help wanted ads. I'm trying to do free jobs for historic Franklin areas, Carton Plantation, and anywhere that I could at least start making my name out, get yeah, my name yeah. out there. And it worked out. And and actually, my very first real client um, happened to be a, a Christian label. And it started because I decided I have to go meet people. Mm-hmm. And because I'm not working with anybody, I don't see anybody. Yeah. So I wanted to play on a softball team. And so I played on this men's league softball team in, in Franklin. And the people, the coach, and there were two main people that really stood out as the guys who had kind of taken ownership of it. And one guy's name was Jack Smith and this other guy, Kent Songer. And they worked for a company called Praise Him Soundtracks, which mm-hmm. was Buddy Killen, who was a philanthropist, very well-off man who had a uh, publishing house called uh, Tree Music, sold it to Sony. So this guy was, you know, had more money than anything. Mm-hmm. And so he had started this little label. And it was, I compare it to karaoke music for churches. Mm-hmm. It's creating three key music so people can sing to right. it. So they, I met these guys and told them what I did. And they said, hey, we need help. Can you do some packaging? So I learned the formats of CDs and cassettes and all that. And so they were a client of mine for years. I mm. became their art department for probably five years. And in the interim of that, 
I had met um, an artist who was actually pretty new at that time, and it was Tim McGraw. Hmm. And I, so I started designing just his T-shirts. I mean, he had just started. And maybe his second album in, and his second album he doesn't even claim. It's not as, it was so bad. <laughs> and um, so I worked with Tim for quite a while. And then he finally, one day, he had a new album coming out. And went to his label of Curb Records and said, hey, I've got this guy I want to design my new album. And Curb was like, no, we have our own art department there in California. They do all of our stuff. And Tim actually fought for me. Mm. And uh, we, they worked it out that I was able to at least design it, but not do the camera-ready artwork for the, mm-hmm. for the printer. So it was an album called Everywhere. And it was, I think, still one of Tim's best he had six number ones on this thing. Mm. It was phenomenal. And I designed his tour book, designed the album, and the label was so happy with the stuff, they actually let go of their art department. Mm. <clears throat> so fast forward, because of Tim, working me into Curb Records, for 13 years I did all of Curb Records design. Wow. And this is in the days of, I mean, I did a Hank Jr., Jody Messina, Tim McGraw, I mean, Christian Axe, uh, Michael English. It was Jonathan Pierce. It's funny thinking about it. But I really got deep into all the aspects of it. And a group called Sawyer Brown, who I fell in love with. And that was the very first time I ever put a video camera into it. I went to the photo shoot that I was directing, art directing. And I took my video camera, it was a little Sony VX2000, and I always wanted to do a music video. Now, this is, again, way before YouTube and anything else. Mm -hmm. Nothing else exists. MySpace didn't even exist. But I thought, you know, I want to do kind of a Mm behind-the-scenes music video. And I did it. I had never seen one. I don't think they were really being done yet. And I remember doing the photo shoot, and I'm filming these guys laughing and patting each other on the back and getting wardrobe and all that. And then I asked Mark Miller, Miller, the lead singer, I said, hey, will you sing one of the songs all the way through one time for me? And he goes, yeah. So he sits down and he sings the song. So, oh, cool. I've got a music video. You know, he did it one time. And so I created a video that uh, has him singing it, but then I mixed it all the B-roll of mm-hmm. getting Behind the scenes. laughing and doing yeah. stuff. It became this crazy hit on his the fan club page, which were usually the big pages mm-hmm. back then. They're the ones who share everything. And I was they gave me credit and put my email address on there. I started getting emails from fans of Sawyer Brown saying, thank you. Mm. It's like, whoa. I mean, so this video thing was kind of cool. But to fast forward from the uh, curb days, in the middle of all that, Lyric Street Records started. Mm-hmm. Which, which was owned was, by Disney. Which right? was the Disney one. And I remember hearing that they were opening up, and I thought, well, I wonder if I know anybody there. I actually made some calls, and they got the people I knew in California got me in to an interview with these people. And this was one year after they had started, and they brought me in, and I became their external designer. I did mm-hmm. everything on, on Lyric Street for 10 years. Wow. Until the day they And sh- Curb. And I was still working with Curb. Okay. Didn't have to sign anything. So was it just you or did you have staff? Just me. That's yeah. great. I had freelancers once in a while just to help with some pieces. So you moved to Nashville. You fairly soon you know, start a pretty thriving, successful business. What's going on with you personally at the time? I mean, what's going on with your life? Are you um, continuing to just like, okay, I'm on top of the world. Things are going great. 
Uh, you, you mentioned you adopted a child. Yeah. Okay. It uh, was not great. I was a self-admitted workaholic. Mm. I had no choice but to... I think if I went to bed before 3 or 4 in the morning, that was pretty good. Where do you think that was coming from? Um, I think I might have been running mm. from uh, some weaknesses in the marriage. Uh, at, so at this time, we had just adopted a little girl from China. Mm-hmm. And we ended up getting this gigantic house. Um, Living the good life, yeah. supposedly. Yeah, exactly. It looked good on the outside. Yeah, well, let me ask you this, Glenn. Um, hold that. Let me back up. All right. Your childhood, your dad, your, you know, uh, the, these other men in your life. Was there ever a time that you allowed yourself to unpack any of that or had counseling? I mean, that's got to affect you in some way as you move forward in your life. My counseling didn't happen until more recently. Okay. And talk about unfolding. Um, Unpacking. <laughs> unpa- oh, my God. It was, yeah, I'd never, I, it would have benefited me to speak to anybody. My problem is in my entire life, there was never a man in my life. Mm. You know, my dad left early on. The next man in line tried to kill us, mm. which he actually did try to kill. We, he threatened to blow us up as a mm. family. Um. And fast forward, my uncle was really, I was close to him, and I got into boys, or I was a weeblow, and I remember going to my first father-son thing, and I went with my uncle. Mm. And then, you know, he died. Mm. Um, my grandpa was real close to him. He died. You know, it was this, my mom was the one solid foundation in my life, but she was working to try to support and so you for this house. She modeled that work She probably did, ethic. yeah. Yeah. But was more of a necessity re- than desire. Yeah. And in her case, I've got a lot of respect for it because she did everything in her power to keep a roof over our heads. Mm. You know, we were that family that the church was bringing us groceries. Mm. I mean, we had no money at all. Mm. So my my growing up was pretty poor. Um, okay, so fast forward back. Let's go back to our bookmark. You're in Nashville. Life successful. Big house. Uh, you couldn't have a child, so you guys are adopting. Meanwhile, things aren't things really, are not great. Yeah, you're so great. the you're, work, you're an alcoholic. I'm not alcoholic. Sorry, <laughs> workaholic. workaholic. Should have been. That would have been easier. I think <laughs> for me, um, it it kind of spiraled, and it got to a point where, in my marriage, we went to counseling. We tried to fix it. We went in there and we just looked at each other. And said, "It's this isn't helping." It's just we like each other, but we were roommates. And at that time, I had started even living, in a sense, in the bonus room. I had a recliner chair, and I was pro- I was tailspinning pretty bad. Um, I got to a point where, because of depression, mm. I wasn't eating with them. And so I was just kind of living my own life, still paying the bills. And my ex-wife, she was still doing the bookkeeping. And um, I remember my dinners were then consisting of like whatever made me happy. And it was Oreos, M&Ms, and Diet Mountain Dew. Mm. I gained a ton of weight. So physically, you're just destroying yourself. I'm destroying. I'm not doing anything physical. I'm just working till crazy hours. And finally just realized this is just, you know, I need to get out of there. I need to get out of that environment. Um, 
it took a year for the divorce to finally go through, but you know, I was, I was out of there and, Mm. you know, and it was crazy moving out because, you know, when you've been married, we were married for 24 years. And so by the time the divorce was final, it was 25 years. Mm. I didn't know life. I didn't really date a lot, you know, cause I was, I met her at really, I was just getting out of high school and, uh, what was your relationship with your daughter at the time? Not good. Mm. Yeah, it was tough. It was, I think it was the early stages of her feeling abandonment. How old was she? At that time, I think she was about nine. Mm. And nine, maybe just 10. And it was, it was rough on her. I was not helping it. And, <laughs> and again, the counseling didn't help. And so finally moved out. Um, my relationship with my daughter tanked at that time. We fought all the time. That had to have been painful for you. It was, and I felt at that time very alone. I didn't know what to do, mm. you know, and so I was, I think I spent about a year that I didn't even date. Mm. I just didn't want to do anything, and I, at that You're time. still eating Oreos and Diet Coke and uh, Not as much, but I <laughs> was not healthy yet, but I had lost some weight. I lost some of that. See, and little things triggered me. It's like, and again, every, just thinking about it right now, every male figure in my life just kind of abandoned me Mm. even to the point when I moved out of the house I basically gave my wife everything Mm -hmm. gave her the house even my tools Mm -hmm. I had a Tron video game I had everything I wanted two things my dog and uh, my Bob's big boy statue Mm. and I'll never forget it was probably my dog was a Wheaton Terrier and his Digby was his name and he had gone through some surgeries because he was he had a lump on his hip and they had done this once surgery that was pretty bad because they had to go into the sciatic nerve and Mm -hmm. it was days before I moved out and he was just back after his surgery maybe a few days he couldn't walk he couldn't do anything he was so sick and I remember it was about three o'clock in the morning and again, I'm already boxed up. I'm ready to move out. Digby couldn't breathe. He started mm-hmm. just having some major health issues at three in the morning. I'm, I remember going down to the living room and just hugging on him. And um, he took his last breath, his head on my shoulder. Wow. To hear my dog's breath, that was, at that time, you know, he was my best friend. And uh, it, it pretty sucked. Mm. So, you know, I remember putting a blanket on him and just thinking, I'll just have to deal with this in the morning. It's mm. three o'clock. And so, you know, next morning everyone's up and we're all crying around this dog. So yeah, you know, moving to the, moved to this condo that was probably too much money because, you know, I added with this, that my wife was ex-wife was still doing my bookkeeping. Mm. So right. that's what had happened with me. But you know, I, reinvented myself. I started getting into photography mm. and got into video, mm. which kind of led me to where you are at now. Wow. Wow. So uh, talk to me a little bit about your, like, uh, that was, a, that was like a tailspin and probably some of the dark times in your life. What, what was going on in your own like spiritual experience or was that even in, in, a part of it or a piece of it or is that something that I had it was not a piece of it in fact I will say the divorce 
put a halt on some things in my spiritual world mm-hmm. because I kind of gave up on a lot of things. Sure. Um, I did become friends with a person who was Jewish who became a Christian born anew, or I forget what they called it, but he became a Christian. Completed Jew. Completed or, yeah. Jew. And that really kind of, that was at that point, and we were starting to work with uh, these companies who work with missions. Mm-hmm. Not so much a mission itself, but it's kind of like the travel agency for mission yeah, like trips. parachurch organization, yeah. So they're up in Chicago, and that kind of rejuvenated me a little bit, to be able to work back in the world again. And, and I even did some world vision stuff. And um, so I was, my work was kind of scattered all over. It was still primarily a music industry, but uh, started really kind of breaking out of the music world. What well, was the, was your spiritual journey and, you know, continued journey? Um, was it one that you just like, Hey, I'm, I'm mad at God or I'm just giving up on it or I don't have time for it or it didn't work for me. What, what was your kind of journey and all that? That's a good question. I think in my journey at the time I was angry hmm. You know, and it's funny, I never, I look at my faith, I'm kind of like a, a vinyl record that I've got my, I am so grooved inside. Mm. I've got the grooves of my faith. Nothing mm. ever changed the faith. However, I was not going to the public place, mm. but my prayer and reading the Bible became bigger so that a lot of different things came out. So the organized church wasn't necessarily a priority to you, but your personal faith was. Got it. And I will, and I hate to even say this, part of the reason with the church thing is the physical building itself. I learned don't have churches as clients. Mm. Once I sort of learned the inner workings of a church and saw the business side of it, honestly, that's probably what changed my mind. A little mm. bit more, and nothing against that. I understand churches need to stay. In, mm-hmm. You know, it is a business. You know, there are people that have to be paid to maintain this church and provide a facility for us to worship. However, the specific things I got involved with, I didn't like what I was seeing, and that even started in California with Grace Community Church. I was uh, working with them a little bit on some projects, and it's a different thing, you know. But I will say this. You know, my faith, I not I believe it, but I know for a fact my faith is what led me to where I am mm. at this point. Mm. Just like getting this job at Disney, I didn't deserve that. Mm. Coming to Nashville, finding a place, getting my first client, meeting this artist that when you say your faith has brought you to those are you saying that it's more of you recognize there's a bigger hand and purpose in all of it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I should have said it that way. My, I pray constantly. Mm-hmm. It is a, my communication with God, with Jesus is daily. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I made a promise a long time ago to never, don't pray just when you need something. Mm-hmm. I do. I celebrate so much mm-hmm. in my heart. And, you know, I hope that that, comes through in what I do. Mm. Um, I'm an extremely passionate person Mm -hmm. in terms of what I do, you know, and like I was saying, when I got into photography, I had no reason. 
I had never taken photography class. I just knew that in Nashville, I was one of my jobs. I became a photo retoucher for a lot of these labels, retouching all these photos that were being chosen for album covers. And I'm looking at some of these pictures that I'm having to make look cool. <laughs> and it's like, these suck. <laughs> and so I start, and I had a ton of independent artist friends. And I thought, you know, what? I'm just going to start shooting everyone's pictures. So I, I did, which led to doing a couple. I, I worked, one of my projects I worked on in the very beginning was Lady Annabellum. I'll never forget. Before they had a label deal, they had just started and did their first photo shoot, designed their logo. Mm. I even did their first music video. That's cool. Hadn't really done many music videos. That's the thing on even on my YouTube. It's called Never Alone, and it was a Jim Brickman song. I think on my page alone, it's close to 4 million hits. Mm. And, I mean, it's taken a bunch of years, and but just to watch it, it's like, wow, yeah. that was fun. I didn't know what I was doing. That's neat. You know, so I, I wanted to learn everything about video. Invested heavy in audio and lighting. Same thing with photography. It seems like when you do something, you don't do it halfway. You go in 120%. Yeah, I've been accused of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you go through this difficult time, the divorce, you know, um, that was hard. You lose some clients, you rebuild your business, you start to get into video. It starts to pick back up again. You're yeah. Yeah. The design, it never picked back up to the days of when I was married. We had some pretty amazing years. Mm. But a lot of that had to do with the industry itself. It had changed. In fact, sure. it didn't really hit me probably until about a year ago mm. that when it actually affected me with right. the fact that creating the most creative cover doesn't really matter anymore. Right. I remember right. Mike Kerb saying things that, uh, if we'll just do a white cover and throw it out there. You know, He's about the music. And, right. and I get it. There's a lot of people who do believe that. Um, the day of the LP, the vinyl is gone, mm. but it's kind of coming back. back. <laughs> I know now I do more LPs than I ever have. Um, but I don't know, you know, it, it changed, but it, it widened. Sure. It narrowed in the design world, but all of a sudden I was doing 30 music videos a year. Mm. Still as total gorilla. I never had a crew. Still workaholic. Yeah, but more a little more passionate. Okay, so a little more focused. I wasn't as late. Right. I, I really did start getting my hours down a little bit, but I just was so driven by the the video thing. It's like I became crazy passionate about it. Mm. So you had a lot of success in the video. Mm-hmm. Your life continued to, to, to so you moved on. Um, talk to me about how you got into this whole documentary thing and lead us up to how you got to Trail Mix video. Documentaries. It's funny thing is I didn't watch a lot of documentaries. Um, honestly, what it was probably the most organic happening for me. If that's a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing music videos, I kind of realized there was one moment I remember waking up and it's like I'm done. I don't want to do music videos anymore mm-hmm. because the pressures of them were huge. Mm-hmm. The politics with the labels. You know, having people wanted catering and. You know, it's like I do it myself. You know, mm-hmm. if I can, if I can do it independently, and I don't need to hire a whole crew, then fine. So then I started being hired for behind the scenes videos. That became really big, and I was, I took on these behind the scenes videos as a documentary. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what, I've got an opportunity to interview the director, the right. artist, and get my shots. And so I really got to 
you know, it's kind of like working at Disney and going to Art Center. Here I am getting paid to do these behind the scenes videos, but experimenting and trying to figure out a style. And I was doing a ton of these and it was cool because that was a celebration moment for me to see a video I did on people.com, you know, the Rolling Stone, they were promoting this video. It's like, here's Trace Atkins and Mm -hmm. his stuff. And so I, I was, I realized in doing that, it's like, I had to start questioning myself. What is it about this that I like? I want to tell stories. Mm. That's all. I was more intrigued by the songwriting aspect of it and how this staging got put together. So I started volunteering. I was doing videos for a lot of nonprofits. Um, my wife works for a nonprofit called Music Cares, which is okay. part of the Grammys. I was doing a lot of their videos of people that they help. And it was kind of cool to be telling stories of guys who are drug addicts and how Music mm. Cares stepped in to help them. Um, worked with some nonprofits of uh, animal... Uh, Oh, I forget the name of that place. Anyway, there was a lot. And also working with um, uh, a company out in Colorado called National Sports for the Disabled, and they train disabled people to do extreme sports. And I was intrigued by that. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, I'm making a difference because now I'm creating videos that these are not just for YouTube. Mm-hmm. They're using them for fundraising. Right. And I'll never forget my favorite moment in nonprofit world is that every year – National Sports for the Disabled, NSCD, they were at their big fundraising event, would get about fifty, fifty-five thousand mm-hmm. dollars at their big dinner. They I was brought in and I created a video. It was like a documentary. It took me a winter and a summer to film it because I was going to I was spoiled. Their headquarter office is at Winter Park, Colorado, in the main lodge, downstairs. So in the wintertime I'm hanging out at Winter Park. And in the summertime, their other office was in the Mile High Stadium, in the Broncos Stadium, near the locker mm-hmm. rooms. So I'm like, no, I love this. This sure. is cool. But I'm able to tell the stories of these athletes, these participants that were like a, a, this guy who's blind, how mm. he was giant slalom skiing. Mm. And I'm skiing with him, trying to keep up to film him. I couldn't even keep up. Mm-hmm. This dude is kicking it. And then working with uh, amputees who are skiing or working with quadriplegics in the summertime as NSCD is hoisting them 20, 30 feet up in the pine trees. And so I realized then there were two things. Number one, I'm loving the nature thing. And number two, I'm loving the storytelling. Mm. And so I took on even these videos as documentaries. And just to tell you, that video that I did for NSCD, so they normally made $55,000, they pulled in two hundred fifty thousand wow. dollars that night. That's amazing. So I like to think it's from the video, but I think they were just better givers that night. But um, I kind of realized that if you can affect somebody, not in a sad mm. way, not in the the old days of showing the starving child with a fly on their face, but show the positive outcome of it, that people are more willing to be a part of it at that point. Mm. So. Um, so you're loving um, nature. You're loving documentary. Is there something going on in, in, inside of you at this time? Or? Not yet. And okay. so what happened is I met, there was actually another artist friend of mine introduced me to a woman who lived out in Chattanooga who, she was kind of an heir to Coca-Cola. So she had, 
she was a philanthropist, so she she had money, but she was giving back. She adopted wild mustangs, and this guy had written some music. Wild horses, wild horses, mustangs. Okay. Yeah, and mostly out of the West Coast, so okay. Nevada. And she had been working with the Bureau of Land Management. And you say she adopted them. What does that mean? You actually through the BLM through the government, you can adopt a horse. You take ownership of it, and you bring it home, and you have to pass a lot of their little bylaws of you have to have so much land, you have to have mm. so many other horses, they have to, you have to provide training, and they have to prove it. So she, she had already adopted, I think, 12 or 13 horses. Mm. And she's got a big farm out in Chattanooga and brought them in. So this friend of mine who's an artist was creating the music that she was using for part, she, well... She started an all-girl charter school. And this charter school was based on the fact that she grew up with a silver spoon in her mouth and wanted to give back. Mm. She found out by mistake, one day she had an open house at her farm. All these girls, these are urban girls that some parents are drug addicts, some are homeless. She found that these horses and these girls had a bond that was pretty amazing. So she started a, a program. For it was a therapy program for mm. these girls to work one on one with these wild horses. You take a wild horse that had no fences, no rules. You take a wild girl that had no discipline. You put them together. Crazy things happen. So this friend of mine was writing the music for programs that she was putting on. Uh, Dirage, I forget the term where it's almost like dancing with the horses, and they walk and it's like a dog healing next to you, mm. but it's like, it's amazing watching it. And as I, I was brought in to do a music video for that. And as I was watching it, I realized this is a story. So I went to her and I said, you know, I think you've got something much bigger here. So fast forward and for one year I was in Chattanooga, I was in Nevada and I was in Oregon following the process of three stories, the wild Mustang, the urban girl uh, living their life in raw ways and the school that this hmm. woman had started. And so it was three stories. So the name of that film was When the Dust Settles. And hmm. that was my first documentary I did. And it was 45 minutes long and I finished it last year. And, you know, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I was paid by my client. And, you know, it was... At the time, we didn't know if it was going to be just a promotional video or what, but it really became this documentary that really meant a lot to me. So I went ahead and learned what I could learn about film festivals and how you, what do you do with it, and found a source and got it out there. I think I submitted maybe to about 20 film festivals, maybe 25, and I was accepted in 11 festivals. Mm. And I'm like, on top of the world. I mean, 11, I, I didn't even belong in that category. You know, this is my first documentary. That's what goes through my mind. My insecurities are pretty big sometimes. But what changed it is we actually won five awards. Mm. Um, one of them was an audience choice. The one that meant a lot to me, too, was in, I think this was in uh, North Carolina. It was uh, social awareness. Mm. And I thought, you know what, that's... We just made a difference in something. Mm -hmm. We told a story. And I say we. It's a friend of mine, Dave Molesworth, that is a, um, he's an editor. He's a storyteller. Um, 
we work well together. He kind of will work the second camera once in a while. So we traveled around together, but it was, it was an adventure. So that came to an end and, you know, and I didn't know if I was going to do another documentary or not. And, um, you know, fast forward. I mean, it, it, a lot of things led to where I'm at now in the middle of this documentary called trail mix. Hmm. So trail mix. So talk to me about how that came about. Now you went through some medical issues too, right? I did. Yeah. So I had a, a need to have a full hip replacement, which pretty much sucked. And they say <laughs> that I will need my other one replaced also. Mm. But this one was, I couldn't even walk. It was the pain. The ball joint had just collapsed and it just became mush. But I, I didn't set out to do a documentary. I, I will say there was a movie called Wild with mm-hmm. Reese Witherspoon. Sure. And at the time when I saw that, it's when I was working with a lot of these nonprofits and some some hardcore therapy groups that were dealing with military vets with PTSD. One of the programs was they took 50 families that have children that committed suicide. Mm. And it was a therapy thing of working with these families Mm. and how to grieve. And I was brought in to go one-on-one with these families and with these military vets and the other program. And I got to learn understood how to communicate with these families and to be compassionate and to kind of grieve with them. But you don't want to be a wimp. You know, you got to be strong because they don't want to cry all the time, but there was a lot of crying going on. So transformation was a big deal for me. I watched these people going through these groups and just, they go in sad and they come out celebrating life. Mm. I thought, I want that. Mm. And then I saw the movie Wild. And the movie Wild was important to me not because of the movie, not because of, I mean, it was a movie about drug addictions and some pretty bad stuff, but something happened in that movie that stuck with me, and that was transformation in that. Mm -hmm. Here's a girl that bad circumstances led to her doing the Pacific Crest Trail. And it's based on a true story. And I'll never forget the scene where she's got her backpack for the very first time, trying to put everything in there. Could not even put it on her. She, it was too heavy. It was too tall, too big, too wide. She didn't even know how to use anything that was in there. She hits this trail. You could not have been more out of place than that. It was just, it was almost comical, you know, but sad at the same time. Yet by the end of that movie, she becomes part of that trail system. Once you, she found herself out there, she became part of that mm. trail. And I, I realized, you know what, that's a major transformation. I like, if that's what the trail can do, that's pretty cool. And I didn't even know about backpackers at mm-hmm. the time. I didn't know that people hiked over 2,000 miles to do these things. But what I found is that in that movie, she found her sweet spot. And the sweet spot to me now is... You can relate it to your everyday life. When you start a new job, mm-hmm. you're, you don't know where your desk is. You don't know the people. You don't know where to go for lunch. You're uncomfortable. You don't want to make a fool of yourself. But, you know, six months down the line, a year down the line, you're one of the staff. You're part right. of that. You find your sweet spot. And with the trail, I kind of saw that with the character of Reese, that she found her sweet spot. Mm. And I thought, we all want that. We mm. all want to find that place where, where we're comfortable. We fit, right. So I kind of found that I was intrigued with backpacking 
And I decided one day, I have a little cabin out in North Carolina, and where the highway goes to the cabin, I would see backpackers every once in a while crossing the, crossing the road. The AT, the Appalachian Trail, crosses right there. And I thought, wow, that's cool. They were like superheroes to me. I thought, that's kind of cool. You know, I didn't really understand what they were doing, but I knew they were hiking a long distance. So I remember one day, I took my big camera. I didn't even own a backpack. I own nothing pack, backpacking-wise. I go out there with my big old Canon C100. It was the big rig, and I had my still camera, and I thought, I'm going to go walk four miles with my four-month-year-old four hip that was just replaced, which hurt pretty bad. And I thought, I'm going to hike up this mountain. And you're only four months into your new hip? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, the physical therapists weren't excited about what <laughs> I was about to do. But I said, I, I've got to do this. I need to meet a hiker. That's all I wanted to do. Was it curiosity for you, or were you, after watching this movie and seeing hikers thinking, was there something bubbling inside of you that said... It was, but I didn't know what it was yet. Okay. Because I didn't want to do a documentary. I just knew that I started... It's like, oh, wow, look at all these YouTube videos on people on the Appalachian Trail. You know, I thought, I want to do that. I want to meet somebody. I just... I started... This was a big year for me, because I... I have a bucket list of a lot of things. And one of them is learning to drive an excavator. One was scuba diving. And I've been certified and learning to do all this stuff. And I just, one of my bucket lists was hike part of the Appalachian Trail. And so I went up there with my camera, hips about to explode. My arm's about to rip off because the camera's so heavy. And I stopped and I'm talking to the camera. I'm doing a little vlogging and talking about things. And, and all of a sudden, this young couple walks, come, Trump trumping down the trail and um, asked me if I could interview him. And they said, yeah. And I remember asking them just the dumbest questions. You know, I was like, so what's your trail name? How many miles a day are you doing? You know, everything that's on YouTube. And it's like, after I finished, I actually edited a little video with that and realized how stupid that thing was. But I realized, well, wait, I've become friends with these guys. We're in constant contact now. They're letting me know of their journey. That's kind of cool. They're le- I'm in on their journey. Like people don't just do this for the day. No. This is five and six months. Wow. And so all of a sudden, everything started coming together. How do you take five and six months off of work? Mm. And then I started watching movies. Uh, there's a goofy one, uh, Walk in the Woods, which the book was way better than the movie, but it was very informative and in meeting people along the way. And then I read a book called uh, Hiking Through by a guy, Paul Stutzman. And I think that was my turning point. That was when I realized people are out on this trail. I'm not too concerned with the day hikers, with the section hikers who do like, you know, 40 miles in a weekend. I'm intrigued by these through hikers who Mm. are dedicating their life to this trail. And this guy, Paul Stutzman, wrote a book. And he's a Mennonite up in Ohio. Uh, ran a restaurant business. It was a family business. And now this book was written 10 years ago. And he was celebrating the fact that he's getting ready to retire. You know, and he's in the book, he talks about talking with his wife. And it's like, okay, when do we do this? They kept putting it off and putting it off. And they were getting closer to finally saying that, okay, we're going to retire. And then she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. This, I mean, like fourth stage. It was bad. And not much time happened from the time they found out that she had it till the time she died. She died like a week later. 
And his way to grieve was to do the Appalachian Trail. Hearing his stories and of whimsical moments and the people that he met is like, right. okay, that's interesting. People, it's not about the hike. It's not about what kind of boots you have. But you get out right. there for clarity. You get out there to find something. And uh, I was really intrigued. And so I went ahead and put together a little video. I had started, I bought some camping gear and I thought, I'm just going to buy everything I need. I'm going to go hike. Mm-hmm. And ended up creating a little video and I ended up sending it to this book author. And I didn't even know if he was alive. It was 10 years ago and I knew, couldn't find him. He didn't have a major publisher. But I sent this little video and a letter to him saying, kind of thanking him for his story, but also I wanted to know more. And he emailed me the next day. I, apparently I had his right email address. Got back to me the next day and says, well, you got me. Uh, and by the way, I, I live in Ohio s- still, but I have a, a girlfriend who lives in Brentwood, Tennessee, and I'll be there next week. Mm. Do you want to meet? I'm like, yeah. So he came down and we uh, had lunch and I d- he agreed to do an interview. He came up here to the studio and did a full interview with them. And the things we had in common were insane mm. to the point that, I'll try to go through this really quick, but it was a lot of people have a story that takes them to the next level on the trail. Right. I was just starting the trail. Mm-hmm. My first day, I had high hopes of going eight miles. Uh, couldn't do it. I think I went six miles. And I was looking at this mountain called Little Hump Mountain, and Little Hump just kicked my butt. I couldn't do it. My hip felt like it was bleeding. Mm. Um my backpack's 55 pounds. I was carrying camera gear and I had way too much stuff. And I was about to quit and I quit in two ways. One, I thought of turning around, but then I realized, well, wait, I can't do that because the guy who dropped me off is gone. So I realized, okay, one step forward takes me one step closer to the end of this trail. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, I don't know what to do. I'll just put my tent here, but that's going to throw me off. And I don't know where the watering holes are. I haven't even learned how to do water yet. So I'm leaning over my poles and I'm looking down at my shoes. And all of a sudden this butterfly, this big old monarch just lands on my mm. shoe. And I'm looking at it and it was like this beautiful butterfly. And then he kind of flew up a little bit. And then he came back and landed on my shoe again. Mm. And it kept fluttering around me. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, it was the only insect I saw around there too. And your mind plays games when you're out there. I mean, I was praying a heck of a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to Jesus. I'm like, do, I don't even know what to do. Do I keep going? Do I go backwards? And then I thought, okay, maybe this butterfly represents somebody in my life. And I kept thinking that who came to my mind was my grandma. I, she had died probably nine years prior and I did not get to get to say goodbye to her. Mm. And she, uh, was a very special person in my life. And so I just said, okay, you you represent my grandma, you know? Okay, cool. Monarch. I, I'd never thought about anybody I've ever lost in my life as a symbol. Mm-hmm. So this is the very, very first time I've ever done that. So anyway, this butterfly kept hovering. It's like it was leading me forward. It would mm. come back and go forward, come back. I said, okay, I'm coming. So it never left you. It never left me until I made the top of that ridge. Mm. I, that 
little butterfly took me to the top that I thought I couldn't make. And as goofy as that sounds, it was this moment of like, cool, you know, and I was celebrating it, but it, it didn't, the butterfly aspect didn't mean much to me yet, but it was like, that's cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, thanks grandma. And so I made it to the next spot. So I made it to eight miles that day and I pitched my tent and fast forward, the, had a great night, woke up the next morning about six o'clock and this heavy cloud had covered the mountain. I remember looking out the tent and couldn't even see like 15 feet in front of me. So I said, I'm just going to go back to bed. And I laid back down and I swear it was the weirdest. I fell immediately into a dream. Mm. And in my dream, it was basically a day in the life of me. It was like, I, I am sitting at my mom's house here in West Haven who I care, care for. And I'm sitting on the floor talking to my mom and the front door opens up and my grandma walks in. Mm. I had never had a dream about my grandma. And it was one of those dreams. I'm looking at her and I'm like, what are you doing? You're not alive. You know, it's like one of those dreams that I'm like, it's very real. It's mm. very real. And I woke up crying like a baby in the middle of the wilderness with this, like, oh my God, that butterfly was my grandma. Mm. And you know, the journey was amazing. I met some other backpackers and it was cool. I got to do some other interviews, but I kept telling everybody about this butterfly story when I was out there. So now fast forward, when I met Paul Stutzman, the author, we're sitting lunch and we're talking about all kinds of things. One was trail names. That's the big thing. You get a nickname when you're out there on the trail. Usually it's, it could be a good name or a bad name. Um, mine became uh, Wanderer based on the fact that I am probably the best wandering person in the world. I just could stare at a wall for hours <laughs> and I just wander. You know, I, that's kind of what has taken me through a lot of my journeys, I think. Um, so Wanderer is my trail name. And Paul was asking, so what's your trail name? And I said, well, it's Wanderer. And well, oh, that's cool. And we started talking stories and I told him the butterfly story and he's sitting there nodding his head going, I, I he was kind of speechless. And I'm like, what? He reaches into his briefcase, puts a book on the table where we're sitting, and he goes, this is a new book that I just finished, and it's now in print. He holds it up, and it's called The Wanderer, and it's all about a monarch butterfly. Mm. It's through the eyes of a butterfly traveling off the Appalachian Trail. Mm. And we're just looking at each other going, oh, my God. That is it was just the synchronicities and the, it, and we had a lot of weird little stories like that. Sure. And, but then I'm finding that the trail is bringing stories to a lot of people. Mm. I'm not alone with this. And I realize that I, I'm being driven. I didn't even know what I was going to do yet, but I'm being drawn into the story. And I kept realizing like, this is way bigger than me right now. I mean, this is a gift that mm. I've been given because again, there's no reason I should be doing this. I didn't own a backpack a year ago. I never hiked. I just had a hip replacement. Sure. And, you know, and then I joked that, well, I couldn't have, too bad I didn't just do a documentary about somebody who collects stamps. I can interview <laughs> in a room all day long, you know, but I'm actually decided for me to be able to get authentic stories, I have to be out there on the trail. Yeah. So that's what Trail Mix became is it's about stories of military vets walking off PTSD. It's about drug addicts walking mm. off their addictions people going through divorce, people grieving like Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to counter that, there's also some positive things of how the trail brings people together. Mm. And also um, uh, one of the important 
parts is I just started d- digging into a study that with prisoners who are sentenced to life, who are not allowed out of the cell, this is out in Oregon, they started showing them films about with nature, mm. just letting them watch nature all day long. Right. The aggression levels have dropped, mm. blood pressure's dropped, everything has changed for these That's guys. Cool. So now I'm, I'm reaching out to some people at the uni- University of Wyoming who were part of the study, and you know, I just feel like there's so many things. There, the, the trail provides wellness. Mm. And have you found that for you, I know you've been back several mm-hmm. times uh, in filming and working on this, do you continue to find healing for yourself through it? Absolutely, yeah. 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 Every, every trip, it's something different. Mm. And I interviewed, there's a therapist that's in the film. And on his interview, he said some great things talking about the trail because he's, a, he's done parts when he was younger, but every day becomes a new story. Mm. The wilderness is about story. You mm. cannot go a day of hiking through, whether it's 10 miles or 20 miles. Sure. You're going to have a story to tell. Mm. It could be good, could be bad. But in a nutshell, when you're finished with this thing, it's going to be probably one of the most favorite things you've ever done. That's like great. I said, it is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And every time I get back, I'm hurting and I'm just not dreading it. But it takes me a day and then I look back and it's like, okay, I'm ready to unpack my backpack and figure out the new stuff I need. And, and uh, I'm going to be doing some rooftop car tent camping now because I'm going to head up the Appalachian Trail over to, you know, close to 2,200 miles going up to Maine and interviewing people on the trail, but I have to go backwards. Wherever I know the people are hiking, I need to go the opposite direction. Mm. So it's like fishing. Right. Going to go upstream. That's really neat. So, so your goal is to interview these people and get their stories and either make it one long documentary or make it a continual type of series. yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's an important piece. And, you know, it, talk about my little nuggets of things that happened. You know, I reached out randomly to the National Forest Service. I thought, well, if I'm going to be out there with a camera, walking around with, you know, I don't want to be like this crazy stalker guy with a camera. So reached out to the Forest Service, and they love what I'm doing. They gave me, they issued me a permit for a year mm. on the AT. Uh, reached out to the uh, Appalachian Trail Conservancy, who maintain the trail under the government. Mm. They love it. They're giving me contacts and calendar of events. That's awesome. So, so uh, where can people go and get a little taste of this right now? Right now, uh, I've got a website that'll be popping up, but temporarily, it's so it's on my YouTube channel, and okay. it's YouTube dot com slash fresh films. Fresh films. Yeah, yeah people could look up trail mix documentary. Probably yeah. find it. Yeah, Insta- there's, Instagram. There's I haven't and, done an official trailer mm-hmm. yet, but I'm doing a lot of. Uh, I'm going to try to be every other week putting snippets, mm. telling some story. So there's pieces out of there that is from the documentary, but I think it's important to, you know, get people into the story a little bit before it all mm. happens. And it's it's unraveling as I go. You know, there's because of this film now, it has led me to. I'm now in the process of starting a 501c3. Mm. I want to start a charity called Trails Please, and it's really to help benefit some of these organizations that take groups out there for mental wellness, mm-hmm. uh, for trail maintenance, 
but military vets dealing with PTSD, troubled teen, mm-hmm. wilderness camps. So I want to be able to give back in that way. I'm, this thing has touched me sure. in a crazy way. Right, right. So who was the Glenn uh, before Trail Mix, and who is the Glenn now, or who is the Glenn becoming after Trail Ooh, Mix? That's crazy. Hmm. You know, I think that the Glenn before, I was, I actually was, I will say I was lost, you know, but lost in a way that the industry that I've worked in for so long in the music industry as a designer, Mm. it's changed. You know, I'm now in my fifties and I'm now that old designer. Mm -hmm. And that was quite humbling. It's like, Oh, I'm not that maybe I, I'm not hip and cool anymore. I'm not hip and cool anymore. I feel like I'm a young 57 year old, but I feel like, you know what? I'm going to keep, if I can keep chugging this stuff along, I will. But I think, so the prior me was very insecure Hmm. not really looking towards the future in a way that, well, if I retire, what do I do? Because I'm, I feel lucky. Anybody in the creative world, we do something that is like a hobby. We get paid to do things that sure. I will do this the rest of my life if, if it offers that. But now with the film, it has actually opened up the door both physically and mentally to something that is a completely new passion. Mm, That's great. And I've realized that, and as we were talking, I've realized the one common factor is wilderness. Mm -hmm. I love the mountains. Mm -hmm. I love to help nonprofits that are out there. As I look back, it's like, well, I've always been helping these nonprofits. Now I actually get to help myself or create a program that helps these other people, you know, in a a better way financially. So hopefully, you know, with this documentary, if it acts like a pilot and we can do offshoots, I mean, I would love to be able to do, uh, hit all the major trails. So you get historical about the trails, but meet the people on, out there and why they're out there. And who knows, I could take you to the Camino Santiago, you know, go to Spain amazing. out there. So, yeah. so I think the opportunity is out there. And I think that I, I came across somebody else who has a uh, fishing show Mm -hmm. and he, we were talking and apparently he started the fishing thing exactly the way that I'm doing this right now. Okay. And he would go out and just take once or twice a year, take people out fishing, deep sea fishing. And then he reached out and said, Hey, I need a sponsor to help provide fishing poles because you know, I can't, I'm spending all this money. Well then he got sponsors and they started giving him money. Right. And so he was giving me some advice on how to deal with it. So we'll, we'll see. And, He's an amazing guy, and I think that he's given me some pretty good advice. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing your story. And um, I, I'm assuming that your advice would be go out on the trail and experience it yourself, yes, right? You have to. <laughs> It'll change you. I said in one of my videos, it's like, even if, if you are out there searching for something, mm. you will find an answer. Mm. You may not like the answer, mm-hmm. and but it's there, you know, and... But it, I do find it interesting that I've taken a couple people out that one was my wife, uh, my wife of two years now. So I got remarried a couple years ago and she's an outdoors person. And, you know, we went out there and she just was like a gazelle. She just floats up the mountain and I'm like struggling, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I wanted her so bad to 
find an answer to something. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's like, no, it was fun. So it's like, okay. So it's not for everybody. Not sure. everybody will find an answer. If you're right. searching for something, you will. Right. Yeah, there's definitely something healing in nature. I believe that 120%. And unfortunately, I think we, as a, especially as American society, don't really get out and enjoy that mm-hmm. as a society. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who do, but um, that's amazing. And I, I, I might... I might go buy a backpack and go with you one of these days. I'll take you out there. All right, Glenn. Thanks again for for being here. We appreciate what you're doing, and we look forward to, to engaging and watching your documentary. So thanks for telling your story. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. 